0: On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Mark Norstad of Paragon Machine Works in Richmond, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone for about an hour and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. Usually, that's a bicycle frame builder. In the case of uh, this week, it's Mark Norstad from Paragon Machine Works. And, you know, modern contemporary custom frame building, it just would not be the same without Paragon. Maybe we would have some other company that was filling the same the same role. Who can say? Uh, but I, I think it's pretty clear that Paragon is totally indispensable to the industry. Uh, when, you're, when you're trying to build bikes in your own little shop, uh, being able to buy tubing and being able to buy the, you know, the head tubes and the dropouts, the brazons, the cable guides, being able to buy all those little pieces uh, from someone and just, you know, stick them into a bike frame versus having to learn machining and to engineer this stuff, to design it and to manufacture it yourself. I mean, that's changed everything, uh, you know, how you would go about this. And I think in the old school You know, when when all bikes had ten millimeter quick release dropouts and they all had uh, rim brakes, um, you know you you could buy castings for a lot of stuff and you could buy forged parts and things. But with the rate of change in the industry, where everything has gone to disc brakes and through axles, and there's a new standard every Tuesday, a new option for how you're going to mount your bottom bracket or your your dropouts or something, I think Paragon really helps uh, keep people up to date with standards in a way that a lot of other suppliers uh, can't keep up with that pace. Uh, Machining, unlike forging and casting and some of these other techniques, you can more quickly develop a product. And Mark's business, uh, Paragon Machine Works, focuses very specifically on bike frame builders. They're a job shop that does, I I think he said, uh, I'm not quoting here, but I want to say he said something like 30% of the work that Paragon does is not related to the bike industry, but most of what they do is, uh, is bike frame building related work. And you can buy it on their website in whatever quantity you want. Where I cut into the interview with Mark, I had asked him to tell the story about the cannon, you know, like a cannonball cannon, kaboom, shooting a cannonball at your enemies. It's a really cool story about how he got interested in machining.
1: So uh, this was uh, before high school. I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. And my father had a friend who kind of dabbled in a lot of things. And one of the things he, he did was have a cannon. It was a black powder cannon. It was made out of bronze and it was about, I don't know, 20, 24 inches long with about a one inch bore, a really big, solid chunk of metal. Uh, and we went up to his property and said, yeah, you guys want to shoot the cannon?" It's like, yeah, heck yeah. So we started shooting the cannon and it was tons of fun, made a huge noise. And when we had to leave, I asked him, where did you get the cannon? He said, oh, I had a machinist make it for me. And it's was like, that sort of set off the spark in my head. It's like, well, if you can be, if you can make a cannon and be a machinist, that's, that's something I want to do. Yeah. So so pretty soon, uh, I got into high school and fortunately for me and a lot of other kids at the time, our local high school had a machine shop and, uh, probably one of the best things about the machine shop was the teacher there. He was really, really on top of it and really encouraged the kids to do stuff. And so, uh, I went through three years of high school and never made the cannon because I was just having too much fun doing other stuff in machine shop. And finally I got to my senior year and it's like, okay, I got to make a cannon. Um, and so I finally did, uh. This one wasn't machined, it was cast, um, and I'd kind of, any place I'd go, I would look for any kind of scrap brass or copper or bronze, and I made it entirely out of just little scraps and bits that I'd found here and there. And the thing worked great. Um, you'd put a, about a bottle cap full of black powder in it and put a fuse in it and light it off, and it sounds like the loudest barrel bomb you've ever heard, um, <laughs> and uh, and pretty much Every time we use it, the cops were here within about 30 seconds. So we just basically had to stop doing it. But it was fun. It was a good project. It was a good learning experience. And that was really, uh, really what got me into doing machine work. That's so cool.
0: Cause, you know, where you start and where you end up, a lot of times it's not where you thought, but, you know, you just, you just wanted to play with a cannon and you thought it was cool. And, and that started you down this, this decades long career path toward, uh, you know, really kind of changing the bike industry.
1: Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, a fortunate thing, our local junior college had a machine shop program. And when I was down in high school, it's like, well, what do I want to do? Well, I really like, <laughs> like machine work, so I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. Um, so I, I took uh, took class at the local junior college as well. And, I, and again, I've got to give credit to the teachers there were really good, really engaging people who really took the time to 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 spend time with the students and actually teach them things and really got a good, uh, good foundation for doing future machine work. Yeah.
0: And so uh, when, when you were young and you were doing this stuff and you were making things, you were also interested in bikes and it didn't take very long before you were probably modifying or making custom parts for bicycles. Do you remember some of the first projects that you had done?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the first things. Uh, okay. So in high school, you know, my freshman and sophomore years, I, I was still still riding a Stingray, although we would ditch the banana seat and put a solo saddle on it, and we we would ride off roads with off road with them. And one of the first things was, you know, I was kind of tall then, and the the Stingray seat post was a stubby little short thing. So the first thing I did was made a a solid steel seat post for my Stingray. Holy um, cow! Which ended up. <laughs> which ended up bending anyway <laughs> you know it, wow. it was fun it was a good project It was a little lathe project um let's see the very first thing i ever made on a lathe was a, a tire valve remover a, a core remover oh cool um because i was always getting flat tires and working on my tubes and stuff like that so i figured that it'd be a good tool to have um one of the more involved projects i did in high school was made a wheel truing stand um a friend of my brother's was a real bike enthusiast and he taught, he taught me some basic stuff about how to true and build wheels. <clears throat> so I was getting into truing wheels and the usual way you do it was put your wheel in your fork, your frame and spin it, um, you know, and C clamp a, yeah. a pencil on the side and try and work with it that way. So, you know, that was, that was, that was okay. Um, but I, <clears throat> I wanted to get better at, at building and truing wheels. So one of the projects was a wheel truing stand and that was, that was really a success that worked well. That was a good, good one.
0: That's cool. I did a. That was one of my earlier projects in the shop too. My dad had a farm workshop, and so they had MIG welders and angle grinders, and they had uh, you know just scrap bin of like heavy channel iron and, and mild steel and stuff. And I made one, and it was probably weighed fifty pounds, and it was super ugly, and it wasn't self centering. But you know, you could kind of true something. And those projects, I don't know what yours was like, but mine, you know, it was, it was ugly, but like just to have that to be able to put that together when you're getting started and you don't know what you're doing is pretty
1: exciting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, mine was kind of ugly too and it was made out of all the, the scrap bits that were laying around the machine shop. But, you know, but ultimately it was functional and I used it for years and years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so you were, uh, you were doing machine work in school and then you got some machine shop jobs. And so I sort of know your story, but, um, I don't know it that well. And I'm also trying to, you know, uh, illustrate it for, for our listeners who might not know, but, um, When was it that you had the idea or the spark of the idea that you wanted to, you know, have your own business or be doing the machine work for yourself? I know you eventually uh, got started in your parents' basement with a couple machines. Uh, like, wh- wh- when and how did you decide that that was the path that you needed to take?
1: Right. Um, that, was, uh, that was sort of a suggestion. Uh, so after... After taking machine shop classes in junior college, um, I was just about to graduate and the teacher said, hey, do you want a job in a machine shop? And honestly, I never even thought about having all this fun in a, in a school machine shop. could lead to a career. Um, but it turned out that it did. Um, so I said, yeah, sure. Um, so I, I went and interviewed for the job, uh, me and a couple other guys from the class, and and I ended up getting the job. Um, and uh, I worked for that company for three and a half years. They were a local uh, shop. Um, they were an interesting shop um, because at the time, uh, so CNC machines had been around for a long time. This was in the late 70s. CNC machines had been around for a long, long time. But the only people that could typically afford a CNC machine was, uh, you know, aerospace or defense work, or you know, some really, you know, big, big shops with a lot of financial horsepower behind them. And just about at that time in the early 70s, sorry, late 70s, um, Bridgeport Mills came out with a really useful, good little uh, CNC mill. And it's just a retrofit on a regular Bridgeport knee um, mill. Mm-hmm. So it you know, didn't have a lot of rigidity, didn't have a lot of horsepower. But what it did have was a really good computer on it. And uh, that's, that's where I sort of learned how to do the CNC stuff. Was that the, um, the
0: Boss 5 or which one was that?
1: That was uh even earlier than that we started with a boss two and by the wow. time I left that place we we had a boss five wow. um and that was uh you know that was um, there were again there were computers that would do uh CAD stuff and cam stuff, but they were so expensive that 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 the shop we were in we couldn't afford it
0: mm-hmm.
1: so we so we basically just you know did all the math long hand on a piece of paper and trigged <laughs> out all our points and uh you know and and we didn't have a, uh, scientific calculator. We just did it, did it longhand with trig tables and square root charts. Wow. And we just figured out our, figured out our positions and, and made it work. So it was really, really time consuming, but it, I got to say, at that point in my life, I got really good at math. Um, and it was a really good sort of mental exercise and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of challenging, challenging to do that. Um, so I got a really good, uh, Well, let let me back up a minute. So I took four years of high school and and learned a lot. When I went to junior college, two years of junior college, I learned as much as I did in the previous four years in high school. Mm -hmm. When I went to work as a machinist, I I probably learned more in six months than I had in the previous six years of school Mm -hmm. because it was so intense and it was was this sort of thing like you've got to do it, you've got to do it in a reasonable amount of time um, and you've got to do it well. Um, so it was really a, an intense learning experience. And that was, that was the thing that sort of really prepared me or gave me the confidence to, to sort of do my own thing. Um, and the way that happened is I, I'd quit the job. I went back to school and took a lot of just fun classes, art classes and French classes and just, just for the fun of it uh, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll back up and touch on that. The, the art classes, I think have really done a lot for me in, in design Oh yeah. Um, in, 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 sort of the way things look, but we can touch on that later. Um, so anyway, uh, I been back at school. Um, so I went, went to visit my old boss, uh, at the old machine shop just to say hi. And, and he mentioned, well, why don't you start your own machine shop? And again, the thought had never even occurred to me, um, <laughs> because you've got to have, you got to have some money to start a machine shop. Machines aren't cheap. Yep. And he said, yeah, you could do it. Um, You know, he kind of patted me on the back and said, you've got the ability to do it. Um, You just have to sort of have the desire to do it. And so I thought about it. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could do that. So I borrowed money from from my brother and my grandmother and got the down payment for a lathe and a mill, and I bought them brand new, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a leap. But on the other hand, it was one of these things where I was thinking, okay, if I'm serious about this, I can't have unreliable equipment. I need really good, reliable equipment. Yeah. And and making the payments on those two machines, they were low enough. I figured that if I was a complete failure and couldn't make it, I could still go get a job and make the payments on the machines. So I yeah. at least be able to keep the machines. You know, I, I was uh, paying practically no rent. I was single, no kids. None of that. So that was a pretty, yeah. pretty easy move to do. Uh, so I started out with the lay of the mill, like you said, is in my folks basement. Um, I was really fortunate that, uh, that my father had started his business in the basement and there was three phase power there already. So that was, that was really kind of a a real bonus there. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. That's so hard to come by. I mean, and you would have been able to use a rotary phase
1: converter if you needed to, but,
0: but you didn't have to. Yeah.
1: But yeah, exactly. It was just made life a whole lot easier. Um, so I I went out and, and looked for work for one day. I went to a bunch of local businesses that my former boss had told me about, um, and I rounded up enough work, uh, to start the shop and start earning some money. Um, one of the, one of the places I did go and look was a local bike shop called, uh, called the Cove bike shop. And that was run by the Koski family. Uh, and there are three, three Kosky brothers. And, uh, the, the three of those guys, uh, were building mountain bikes at the time. Um, you know, kind of everyone was building mountain bikes and their, their bike was called the Trailmaster. Mm -hmm. So one of the first jobs I did in the machine shop was making front dropouts for a a TrailMaster fork. Um, so kind of right from the beginning, I started doing bicycle stuff. The intention was not to have a machine shop that was specifically a bicycle machine shop. Um, but being here in Marin County at that time, bikes were just a real natural evolution. And I was into bikes too. You know, I'd go to the co bike shop and buy my, buy my bike parts there. Um, so so bike parts were part of it, but the real idea for the whole machine shop it was going to be a job shop, and I was going to take whatever jobs came in and I did that for years and years and years mm-hmm. until uh, sort of finally this guy Gary Helfer showed up um, <laughs> and if, for the for the people on your podcast who aren't familiar with gary uh Gary's one of the original three founders of Merlin Metalworks, the manufacturer of titanium, the first successful titanium bicycle frame um Gary had left Merlin and signed a non-competition agreement. Um, and pretty much almost to the day that his non-competition agreement went out, he contacted me and said, Hey, can you make these parts out of titanium? Um, I said, yeah, sure. So th- this um, would have been early nineties. That was, let me, gosh, uh, no, I think it was have been earlier than that. Uh, let me see. That was probably late, late eighties. I mean, say, yeah. you know, ballpark, 88, 89, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, So he had had some pretty simple little parts that were that were lathe parts. At the time, I had a CNC. By that time, I did have a CNC lathe, Mm -hmm. Um, and there was another local shop uh, called DKG, run by a guy named Dave Garut. And Dave had a CNC mill. So between the two of us, we would do mill parts or lathe parts. Um, These parts out of titanium for Gary and the. The people building titanium frames at that time were, you know, you can count them practically on one hand. There was almost nobody doing it. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the word traveled fast, definite word of mouth kind of thing. Gary said, yeah, I'm getting this stuff made by Mark at Paragon. And pretty soon the phone started ringing. People said, hey, I hear you're doing titanium stuff for bikes. Can you do this? And it's like, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so it really is a, is a word of mouth thing. It was not a, a deliberate um, thing on my part to go out and, and seek out bicycle stuff it just sort of you know i was in the right place at the right time again mm-hmm. um you know and, and and one day i get got a fax from ugo de rosa the founder of de rosa bikes in italy and it's like wow, wow. it's like it was really
0: <laughs> a fact really uh,
1: yeah <laughs> yeah exactly i mean but it, but it's surprising I, I mean i i still to this day don't know how he found out about me but somehow he did and we did uh we did dropouts for for uh, de rosa for a long time and, and I'm still doing parts for his, his son Doriano de Rosa um, wow. and that's been, been a great relationship um, really a good family um, but that's that's sort of how the how the transition happened or how I sort of got into it and it was uh, you know it, it was a deliberate plan on my part to 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 do machine work, but doing the bicycle stuff was kind of a again being in the right place at the right time, and it, it turned out you know as it's turned out so far it's been a great thing i'm really really happy how it turned out
0: yeah yeah definitely i mean and i think about uh when i look at the stuff that you offer and for the prices and that you don't need you know if i went to some other random machine shop and i said hey i want this this bike part and here's even a drawing of it that's dimensioned and toleranced and the materials they would want a minimum quantity of quite a bit. And maybe they don't specialize in that sort of work. And so they'd have to figure out how they wanted to go about work holding it. And they probably want, you know, a pretty good price for it to to do all that work. Whereas uh, someone can just go to your website at any time of day, anywhere in the world, they can pick just the things they want in tiny quantities, and they can buy it and it'll ship to them. Or if they did want to get custom sets of dropouts or something made from you, you specialize in that sort of work, and you're really good at making it efficiently. So I think you're you'd probably be a pretty good person to do business with if somebody did want custom stuff. But that that just uh, didn't really exist in the same sort of way, uh, I don't think. At least, you know, there's some castings in different parts. But uh, when it comes to all the machined offerings that you have and stuff, I just feel like the bike industry would be a very different the, – the custom handmade bike industry would be a very different place if it wasn't for, you know, the product offerings that you have. And So it's kind of cool that that just sort of happened <laughs> almost without you trying yeah, to well- –
1: yeah, and 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 part of the other thing that happened at the same time, and this was a revolution that happened worldwide, everywhere, in everything, was the application of of computers to to everything you can you can think of. You know, mm-hmm. your electric toothbrush has got a chip in it and stuff like that. But um, but what what that did was it brought down the cost of manufacturing significantly. And and you mentioned castings, you know, so that the yeah. previous sort of you know, reasonably efficient way to make something is to have something cast. And that, again, you still have minimums you have to do and you end up with a cast part. And that's where CNC machining has really worked for the sort of, uh, you know, essentially low to mid-level production where you can just really turn out the same thing over and over and over again. Um, And again, without that revolution of computers that happened at approximately the same time, Yep, you know, this wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. I mean, there's no way you could do all this stuff on manual machines.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You'd be sitting there with a, with a manual mill and a rotary table and trying to all these different fixturing points for the different arcs. And it would be crazy. Right.
1: Yeah. Which, which is, which, which I actually have done. I did some prototype uh, rear dropouts for the trail masters on, wow. on a rotary table. And it was, <laughs> uh, it was, it was a challenge. And there was, there was a lot of math there. It's, it's fun.
0: Yeah yeah no I did a project years ago where I made my my frame building fixture and I did a couple arcs and different things that I wasn't really set up to do and it is it's really fun problem solving to think you know to use basic math and set it up but it's it's just you don't couldn't make any money on that kind of stuff, and it's very slow and well, right exactly
1: yeah. yeah um yeah and that I uh, say that type of stuff is best suited for prototypes or very limited production,
0: yeah, yeah certainly and I mean something you were saying about your, your first job that you had, how you learned more in the six months doing that than you did in the previous two years of tech school or four years in high school. was interesting because I only had one job where I worked in a CNC shop and it was only nine months. It wasn't that big of an experience, but in that shop, and I don't know if it's more about the culture of that shop and the work they did, or if it speaks more to the era, you know, like 2017 when I worked that job, but for me, mm-hmm. I was so thirsty and, and like excited to learn anything I could, and what they did was pretty simple and they just wanted somebody to kind of load parts, tighten the vice press press cycle start or to like saw sure. material and so I was it was impossible or nearly impossible for me to learn anything at that shop even though I was eager. And I wonder if that's yeah more of like a, a phenomenon of the time we're living in now, or if that has more to do with the culture of that particular shop. I think probably some places would be a better place to learn. But when you say that, I'm yeah, just, well, I'm jealous.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's 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 a combination of both. I think I mean the the typical positions in a machine shop are going to be a machine operator, which yep. is the guy who just loads, exactly. loads the machine and and presses the button. Um, and then uh, you know. I, um, a step up in responsibility and typically a step up in pay is are the machinist yep. um and so one of the things is you know I'd, I'd started my job as a machinist and i had a formal training as as yeah. a machinist um so as you know basically as soon as i walked in the door they handed me a print and said go make this and i was like okay and i went and made it where where the typical machine operator, um, usually doesn't have that, that type of background to, to, to be able to, to start producing stuff. Um, um, however, any machine operator who's competent, who understands the process and enjoys the work, yeah, they're a really good candidate to, to move up the ladder to, to become a machinist.
0: Um,
1: and of course, uh, it, it, you know, it, it depends on, on the shop. It depends on how busy it is. Um, you know and the other thing is there there may not be positions open for a machinist and unfortunately um you know if if the position isn't open it kind of doesn't matter how big you are yeah i think
0: that was part of the problem for me in that one shop was just that it was they just didn't need someone in that position they had one guy who could kind of cover that and and they were happy with that so anyway right
1: yeah exactly yeah
0: moving on but it well i guess what was interesting about it to me is whether that's a question of era or or the particular shop
1: but Right. Yeah, and it's 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 a it's a combination of both. Um, you know, it's certainly certainly the culture at at all shops are a little bit different. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is, um, it's very rare that anyone gets a formal training to be to be a genuine you know manual machinist. I mean that. Yeah. Uh, you know that that sort of education is almost impossible to find anymore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when you're making parts out of titanium, one of the things that strikes me about that process is that um, I don't know that you could get material saw cut and delivered to you. And I would imagine it would be complicated and expensive. But, but what you do in order to make blanks for all these parts is to saw them out of plate or a lot of times to saw them out of big chunks like forged chunks. And that's a complicated process that requires, I mean, your bandsaw has like a carbide tip blade and then you have the fixed string to hold it. And when you get these blanks, they're not always the same size, right? So you need to do some math to figure out how you're going to slice and dice it to make your pieces, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sort of thought behind that is um, the, the bigger the piece of titanium you buy, the less it costs per pound. Um, And so one of the things, and then, yes, there, there are, plenty of titanium suppliers and you can call them up and you can have it sawn to any size you want. Um, but sawing titanium is very time consuming. So you're going to get charged for that time yep. and buying from a titanium supplier, it's going to be brand new certified material, which is great stuff. Um, you know, I, I uh, sort of slight sidetrack here on, on material supplies. Um, titanium is, is a material that is, uh, is used very often, well, it's used in aerospace and medical stuff all the time. And there's always leftovers and it goes to the scrap yard and officially, you know, it's scrap material, but it's still perfectly good material for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are a number of distributors around the country who buy up scrap, um, and they resell it. And the sort of polite way to say it, it's titanium that comes on the secondary market. Um, And so there's all this titanium that's available, um, you don't necessarily get the certifications with it, but we've gotten these big blocks of titanium that have, uh, say PWA on our Pratt Whitney aircraft. They've got Boeing purchase order numbers on it. They've got heat numbers. So, so you know, it's good. It's good material. I'm I'm confident that I'm, I'm getting good material. Um, and because we do buy these huge blocks, like you said, we chop them up. We can, we can be very economical on the, on the cost of, of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we do, you start with a big chunk of material. You can, saw, or we can saw it to any size we want. It's not like we have to, uh, conform to some, uh, some already existing size. that's on a distributor shelf. We can make yep. cut it to any, anything we want. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, you know, so it it is very advantageous to us. Um, you know, uh, I think this summer we bought an uh, 1, eleven hundred pound block of titanium, <laughs> I'm just sawing up the last of it right now. Um, and and we've been able to make everything out of it. We've made made all sorts of dropouts and uh, just components out of it uh, mm-hmm. because we have had the ability to saw it to any size we like, and it's a. You know, it, it certainly is time-consuming, um, but I think overall it's, it's an economical way to do it.
0: Yeah, and when you have the process figured out, I'm sure that took a while to develop the process to figure out which saw but, blades, which saws, what speeds and feeds, how you were, you know, how much kerf and uh, sure, like, yeah, yeah, exactly, how much drift to the blade you can account for and still get a good yeah. part without without wasting material. Right.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's a process like like anything else we do. And there's there is, certainly is a learning curve involved. Um, and, and we went through a lot of saw blades and a lot of titanium, but yeah. we got to figure it out now.
0: Yeah, because something for me I've been noticing lately is I'm I'm using mostly 6061 aluminum, 303 stainless, mm-hmm. a little bit of 954 bronze. And I can get all those things saw cut to length and delivered for like hardly anything more than what you'd pay for the full material. And in my tiny shop, where I don't really have much room for a saw, that's been amazing. Like the workflow right, is yeah. just so much better. So for me it's a no-brainer, but, but that it's not the same for everyone. You have the room for these saws, you have really nice saws, and you can't source titanium in the same sort of way. So I, I, I guess what I want to do is I want to emphasize to our listeners that uh, the, the service that Paragon provides is, I think, more than it sometimes looks like. You know, It's like you don't just take the blank of material – and tighten it in the vice of the, the Kitamura CNC mill and hit cycle start. Uh, even just getting that blank is, is quite a job. And you have, I think you're uniquely good at that. But if you went to some other random shop, they maybe wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't have the sort of the supply chain and the workflow figured out in the same sort of way.
1: Well, right. And, and titanium is sort of, I mean, it's getting much more popular now, but it's an odd enough material that most shops just don't even want to touch it because they don't know where to buy it. They don't know how to machine it. Um, yeah. They know it's difficult and expensive and, yep. um, and mistakes are costly. So, yeah. So one, one of those things, you know, if you can get through the learning curve uh, it's a good, good position to be in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else was on the list here? Oh, I, the, the soap Wampdos, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the origin and the story of soap Wampdos. I mean, uh, of course, uh, Bruce passed this year, um, which, you know, casts sort of a, a heaviness to the topic, but uh, I'd love to hear some about the story uh, of the society of people who actually make their own shit. I believe that is the acronym,
1: right? That's, that's exactly it. So uh, yeah, the, the Bruce you mentioned is Bruce Gordon of of Petaluma, California, uh, just right up the road from where we live. Um, And Bruce was a a longtime friend. Um, And we went to Eurobike and I think it was the second or third year they had it. Um, And, it was typical going to a trade show where you see the inside of the airport and you see the inside of your hotel and you see the inside of a convention center and and you don't see anything outside of that. But as we're, as we're coming back from the show, one of the things that we said, well, what what did you think of the show? How did you like it? And the the thing we both came up with was so much stuff is made by, I mean, people will brand it and that's, it's been going on forever. It's, it's, it's nothing new, but it's sort of this thing is like so many people claim to make it. Um, and, and I think it's perfectly fine to, to brand something and acknowledge that you aren't actually the manufacturer of it. Um, but I, I, I think as, as a manufacturer, I take a lot of pride in making stuff and I know Bruce did as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was like, well, all these people aren't actually making anything. They're just buying something and putting a sticker on it. So that's where he said, well, yeah, I mean, people who make their own stuff, make their own shit. They, they should like, we should all get together and have a society. And it's like, yeah, that should be the society of people who actually make their own shit. Um, so that's, that's how it, it got started. Um, and then, uh, the, the society of course was, was me and Bruce. Um, we declared each other benevolent co-dictator for life. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm the only one left now, uh, last man standing. Um, but, uh, the The society uh you know is is open to anyone who actually makes their own stuff and takes some pride in in their own manufacturing ability um, and we had some we had some fun with it we went to uh to the um, bicycle trade shows and gave out awards uh you know like the uh oh, the best uh, best bike made in taiwan um, <laughs> uh, there there' a whole bunch of them and uh we, we would brainstorm by trying to think of who did we want to get an award? And then we'd go backwards and come, think up some kind of award for them. Um, so it was it was not like the Academy Awards where people actually got nominated or anything like that. It was, mm-hmm. uh, it was us kind of poking fun at the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I got uh, to give some credit where credit's due. A uh, guy, uh, David DeFalca, who worked for Bruce for a long time, was a huge inspiration in that. And so it was uh, Sean Walling of uh Soulcraft, yeah. Sean of Soulcraft. That was it. Um so th- those uh, those two guys definitely helped out and kind of gave it some momentum that uh that Bruce and I uh <laughs> we were running out of gas. So those we got some young blood in there and uh, and that helped a lot. So um, so what's the what's the story with the f- the fez wearing uh Bruce said Bruce came up with this idea He's like, well, you know, if we have a society, we should all we should be readily identifiable as members <laughs> of the society. So I said, Yeah, sure, let's do something. And then the next time I went to Bruce's shop, he said, Look, I got these got These things cool. And it's like, Well, yeah, those are really cool. And so he, he found a local embroidery place and had his logo embroidered on him. And it was, you know, it was just you know, again, just kind of goofy fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. I uh I when I was at the um the NABS show in sacramento this spring i tried to go to the the bar with the uh awards and uh oh right Uh there's just not a lot of capacity at that bar so we're waiting outside the whole time but um yeah it's cool to cool to see the way that the the industry has the camaraderie and these sorts of uh you know can celebrate this sort of thing especially you know you see that at the handmade show specifically right because it's uh it's not right it's not inner bike or something
1: yeah. Yeah. It's not an interbike. And, and I, and I've got to, uh, give some credit to Robert Ives of, uh, in Sacramento who put those shows, shows together. He to does a uh, um, blue
0: blue collar cycles, right?
1: Blue blue collar. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. So Robert, uh, another gem who really has helped yeah. out and got sort of kept this thing going. Um, and actually, you know, kind of as an open invitation, if someone feels that they want to take it over, uh, you know, and, and sort of carry on the tradition, um, that's that is perfectly fine um you know because if if, uh, someone like i said if someone is a manufacturer and they take pride in their work um and and the purpose of it is not to be mean to anyone the purpose of is to kind of poke fun at people and say hey you know you didn't really make that did you (laughs) um and that's that's sort of what it's all about
0: yeah uh i wanted to ask you you know i'm always interested in this show in like um historical perspective and how things have changed you know especially when i talk to chris chance and and uh, Stephen Belinky and different folks who've been who've been around longer and since you've been doing the machine work so long uh i'm curious you know in like the last 25 years or however long you want to think about it but i think 25 is a good number what have been some of the what have been some of the biggest like innovations that have made a big difference to the way that you do the work that you do. I mean, I think of like cam software would have to be huge. Uh, also, you know, cutting tool technology, or like, I know you have a multi axis lathe, uh, or I know there's been big advances in work holding, uh, like what kinds of things like have made the most fundamental shift in the, in the way that you use your tools and go about the work that you do in your shop?
1: Yeah. Um, you kind of covered everything I was going to say right there, you know, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, but so so computers obviously. Um computers uh do so much for us. Uh and it's sort of, you know, you really kind of take it for granted, but um so the computers run the CNC machines and uh the computers that do the CNC machinery, they were around long before a personal computer was around. It was a sort of the the original uh computer that really got spread out to the masses, you know, was really a well distributed computer system. Um And then when uh, the personal computers came along, that opened up a whole nother window, which opened up, uh, you know, sort of affordable CAD CAM software. And for your listeners who aren't familiar, the CAD is computer-aided design. CAM is computer-aided manufacturing. So it's kind of a two-step process. Uh, But again, that software has really revolutionized the way business happens. And then, of course, anyone who's in business knows how applicable a computer is to business. It was kind of a surprise to me how well the computer uh, took over all of the office functions, you know, doing payroll and accounting stuff, uh, and that's just really a whole other, whole other yeah. thing that uh, that that really helps helps run the business. Um, cutting tools have changed phenomenally. They are just, I mean, uh, you know, when when we first started, uh, it was really rare to use carbide. Um, Everything was high speed steel. If you're lucky, you had cobalt steel. And then there were a couple of kind of oddballs out there like black alloy and uh, oh, some some other sort of exotic high speed steels that, that were that were definitely better. Um, Stellite was one um, carbide started out as a uh, carbide has been around for a long time. I think it's been around, uh, I think, and I may be wrong in this, uh, at least since World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um and when it first started out, it was really only applicable for, um, for aluminum and sort of abrasive plastic materials and stuff like that because it was such a coarse grain. Um, and uh, the carbide manufacturers have figured out how to make a much finer grain carbide and a much, uh, much better carbide. Um, so now it's applicable for all materials. Um, and the other uh, huge advancement in cutting tools is taking place are the coatings that happen on, on top of carbide. So not only do you have this incredibly strong, durable substrate, you've got a coating on top of it that your material doesn't stick to. It's better at high temperatures. Um, it just does all kinds of great things for the carbide. Um, the machinery, as you mentioned, we've got multi-axis lathes. Uh, again, that goes directly back to having computers in the shop. Um, well, let me let me take that back for a moment. Um, there have been multi-axis lathes around for a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. there are screw machines there are a typical good example of that, uh, multi-spindles, stuff like that. Uh, which are all mechanical, and I uh, you know, really got to tip my hat to the guys who can set those things up and run them. But <laughs> what the computer did to the multi-axis lays is make them easier to set up, uh, make them run faster, and just make them more versatile, which is, which is what computers have done to all machine tools. yeah uh, uh, and the the, the multi-axis lays are a real investment in in money. Um, you know a typical uh, multi-axis lay, I like to say it's two lays and two mills combined in one machine. Um, and again, for your listeners who aren't familiar with this, uh, if you know what a lathe is, a lathe makes a round part. Um, so we make a round part on one spindle and then we have milling cutters that we can put flats or drill holes in it. And then another spindle opposite to the first spindle comes over and grabs the part. And then you can do machine work on the, on the back half of the part. And then the part comes out and it's finished. It's done. So you yeah. put round stock in one end and you get finished parts out the other side. So once it's set up, and that's kind of a, a key thing, once it's set up, um, it just cranks out the parts. Uh, it's really, really, really great machine. Um,
0: yeah, I, I hear the, the setup on those tends to be pretty involved and time consuming, and so that, and I don't know that much about it, but that seems to be what you hear about multi, uh, multi-axis and, and live tool lathes. Has that been your experience?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. You know, and, and it's, it, it's, it's like everything else is a learning curve. When you first do it, you think you're going to go bankrupt before the end of the year. Um, <laughs> and then, and then after making a few setups, you figure, okay, you know, now I'm getting the hang of this. I I can do it. Yeah. Um, one of the other advancements that is kind of underappreciated people don't think about a lot is the, is the cutting fluids that we use to cut, oh, yeah. cut metals with. Um, and again, for your listeners who aren't familiar, um, When you're cutting metal, typical, you are flooding it with some kind of lubricant and coolant. Um, Typically, they've been just straight mineral oils, which are really messy and smelly, and they smoke. um, But they leave great finishes. They're really nice for that. Um, Sort of the other thing are these things called water-soluble oils, where the oil is emulsified mixed with water. So you've got about a 90 or 95% water, and the balance is oil and emulsifiers. Um, and because they have oil in it uh there's bacteria that lives on oil um and the funky thing there is you get bacteria in your oil and it just uh it smells rotten it 's horrible yeah. it 's just a horrible, nasty stink so what 's coming out now is you 've got um these cutting fluids that are entirely synthetic they have no oil at all in them, so if there's no oil in them there 's no oil to for the bacteria to live on and go and go bad so um that's one of the great things you got these cutting fluids that are absolutely clear, clear as water and they don't stink and they last a long time um and they you know and 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 they work great for cutting. I mean they are absolutely fantastic as a lubricant and a coolant. So that's sort of this this little known thing that uh, really has evolved and, and made a big difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like all these little things uh some of them make a huge difference in in what you're doing uh just being able to so remove the material and and get on with it without uh, plugging up end mills or uh, burning up tools or right
1: know. right
0: yeah well I mean it's cool to get that perspective too because uh, things have changed so much and um, and for me you know getting into machining and CNC machining in just the last you know five years uh, you know I I see what we already have and I'm like oh it's pretty nice it's pretty easy <laughs> but like
1: yeah it well right it, yeah it is um, you know and 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 it's sort of sort of analogous to I mean, you can look at anything that's, that's happened in the last 25 years. And there's been these huge, huge technological breakthroughs. Yeah. And the same thing has happened on bicycles. You know, there's clipless pedals and there's disc brakes and there's carbon fiber frames and there's, you know, index shifting. Um, and you can just go down this whole list. And if you look at a bike that is made now and a bike that was made just 10 years ago, you wouldn't want to ride that 10-year-old bike. It's so much better be yeah. riding a modern bike. Um, and, uh, the advances that have happened in suspension, you know, I remember when the, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I certainly remember when the first rock shot came out mm-hmm. and look at how far we've gone from this thing with 50 millimeters travel. Um, it was just, I mean, we're just have come so far in suspension. It's almost unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. But that leads to another leads beautifully to another question I had on the list, which is, uh, you know, in your opinion or in the way that it's affected you personally in your business, what do you think is the worst new bike standard put forward in the past decade or something along those lines?
1: Uh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) let's see. I I, I don't know there's any, any worse stand or any poor standard. I think what's, what, what I would say is kind of poor is coordination between manufacturers of components and the bicycle frames to try and come up with, you know, standardized things. Um, you know, I, I mean, you can take uh, like headsets, how many different variations are headsets are there and how many do we actually need? You know, so you've got all these different head, headset standards um, and you're, and you're really kind of, kind of fighting it. Um, you know, as, as another, example uh you know skewers or through axles uh on a 12 millimeter rear you got four different thread pitches you could you could come up with why haven't we standardized on one um and again uh on the on the length of those um everyone has a different thickness of dropout so every bike has a different length of of skewer and it's just ridiculous why you know why can't we settle on 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 one um so I, i mean it's, it's pretty obvious why, you know, everyone comes up with an idea and says, oh, well, this is such a good idea. Obviously, this is the way it should be done. And then someone else either thinks of it concurrently or wants to improve a design. And, and incrementally, these things happen. Um, but it's, it's really tough to coordinate, um, you know, with the standards that SRAM and Shimano are giving us with the, the uh, you know, our actual capability to manufacture stuff. Um, to inventory it and and try and try and make this stuff have a have a broad appeal yeah I, i think there's not not necessarily one one standard that i would uh you know uh you know say say is not as good as the others but i would say that some coordination between the manufacturers should could sure go a long way to make all this stuff a lot easier
0: yeah yeah certainly and um and for you i've noticed the way that you have your product line and run your business is typically when you release something, you know, you would like to just kind of keep it the same. You know, your customer knows what to expect. You have your drawing that's dimensioned toleranced on the page where you can buy that product. And so you don't want to go making like 10 revisions or consolidating two similar products into one. If you could start, uh, start over every year and make, uh, all the changes that made the most sense to make as things changed and progressed, that'd be one thing, but that's, you know, that doesn't make sense for your business because people come to expect that they can reorder the thing that they're used to. And so, uh, you don't always have that, you you don't always have that clairvoyant sort of like ability to predict the future. and So you're trying to make the best design you can, but then every new season, you know, there's, there's new tech and, uh, stuff doesn't always play nice in the way that you would hope. Uh, it's, you know, it's complicated. I think it'd be easy. It'd be easy if, if you could just freeze frame time for a second and say, okay, What's the best way to address all of these past and and current things, but you don't have that that sort of uh, opportunity i guess
1: well, right, exactly and then you would have to have a sort of this freeze across the entire bike industry and have yeah. everyone come up with some kind of agreement which is you know which is just absolutely yeah. impossible to do but to to touch on on making things and trying to keep them the same, you know uh, you know uh, ten millimeter dropouts uh, have been around since you know the days of Tulio Campagnolo. Um, and we made thousands and thousands and thousands of those things. And then all of a sudden dropout standards changed. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a, was a huge investment for us to try and come up with, with dropouts that, that worked. Um, but that was a real improvement. It actually, I, I think makes a better frame and a better wheel and frame interface to have have a 12 millimeter skewer, uh, or 12 or 15 on the front. Um, it really, does build a better bike. Um, so these things change and they evolve. And as a manufacturer, you kind of grump and you groan about it. You know, we, we gotta, you know, change everything and make new stuff. And then you really, I I have to look, stop and, and look and say, well, this is what's driving the business and this is what is making our money. So when these changes happen and changes can be good or bad, I like to think of them as, it's, it's evolution. It's not a ch- necessarily a, a change. Um, and people complain about changing standards and I said, no, it's a changing option. You can take it or leave it. You don't no no one's forcing it down your throat, but ultimately I think all these things that have changed have, have been for the better. Um, and that has, has really helped our business. You know, it's like all of a sudden we've got all these new parts we can make. And now those new parts that we make are new parts that we can sell. So, uh, from a business standpoint it's a it's a good good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And um yeah, it's it's easy to be cynical about it uh you know when you have to buy new stuff especially like in my experience of being, you know, a small frame builder trying to make frames and like oh well, you know, I should really get the the through axle dummy axle so that I can build with these dropouts well it turns out there's like a bunch of variations for the same one and they're each, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. 50 bucks or whatever that you know there've been different times where I'd order some from anvil and uh and don is great and he would get stuff right in the mail but um you know there was there was the syntax version and the non syntace version and there was the one that fit his disc brake tab fixture and there was the one that didn't and then Uh, At least once or twice I had issues in compatibility bolting the dummy axle I had from him for a particular standard to the dropout that I had from you. Because again, you know, there's not always 100% communication between every single party in the industry. Not everybody has all the same info or uh, technical specs maybe uh, don't outline every little part of it. And so, you know, I had to have to modify this or that. It's not that big of a deal. But, um, you know, I can understand the, the friction that people feel. And at the same time, yeah, it's just like it keeps, it keeps getting better. It's hard to deny that.
1: Right, right, exactly. And, I, I, you know, I, I certainly sympathize with people that have, you know, a person with a 10-year-old mountain bike is a perfectly rideable bike. It's, it's, it's a, I mean, it was good enough for 10 years ago. It's certainly rideable now. But I want to say if you get that guy on a, on a modern mountain bike, um, as, you know, once you get past the, the money issue, which is a real serious issue, um, yeah. the guy's probably going to love his new bike yeah
0: Yeah, certainly um is there any other things i wanted to touch on in this interview with you i don't know i just i think the I, I got to visit your shop in the spring uh when i came to california for the nab show and it was really cool to see all the machines uh to see the whole crew of people that you have i think you run a tight ship and you really serve the bike industry in a meaningful sort of way Um, not only just that you've been there, uh, through it all, which is really cool, but also I think, you know, people probably, I I certainly took for granted in the beginning, um, how useful it is to be able to just order all this stuff and then get on with it. You know, as someone who wants to build bike frames, uh, you aren't going to own a bunch of machines in the beginning generally, and you're not going to know how to machine parts, even if you did, uh, have the, you know, it's, it's all these things you'd have to learn if you wanted to make bikes and you didn't want to just buy off the shelf parts. And so if you can just buy stuff from a company like Paragon and then uh, go to your shop and just weld or braze it together or something, uh, you get, you get a finished product massively quicker. And, um, anyway, I think it's really cool what you do in the, the, the products that you offer.
1: Well, thanks. I, I, I really do appreciate that. And that sort of brings up a thought that, um, you know, this is going back to, uh, how, how computers have revolutionized things. Um, the sort of idea of building a bike frame, um, building a bike frame, the ind- each, each individual step is very, very simple. Mitering a tube, piece of cake, anyone can do that. Um, mitering the other end of your down tube, 90 degrees out of phase, okay, now you got to think about it, and then getting the length right. So the, each, each of the individual steps is not complicated. Putting them together and getting them right every time is kind of complicated. So when people would first start building a bike frame, you know, in the old days, 30 or 35 years ago, you would have to apprentice or, or have a mentor kind of a, a position with an established frame builder. Well, the problem was there weren't many established frame builders around, you know, there was on the West Coast, there was Bruce Jordan and Albert Eisentrout. um, you know, and then throughout the country, there were other frame builders. But, you know, really, I mean, were there like maybe 10 frame builders in the United States? So... It's really difficult to get your foot in the door, and what's happened with computers is you can look on youtube um I hear there's some guy in New York who's doing youtube videos who's who, you know um you know and and besides you, everyone else is disseminating information throughout the internet, yeah, and that is a whole whole revolution where you don't have to have some some old guy with a torch um showing you how to do it you can you can look somewhere else and get that information. And the information is freely available. I mean, literally free. I mean, yeah. going, to, going to a frame building class, a, a traditional frame building class, you know, uh, you know is, is a serious investment in, in money and time. Um, and what it's done is opened up this whole thing for, uh, for frame building as a hobby. Um, before, if you were going to become a frame builder, you did it with the intention of earning a living. Yeah, And frame building as a hobby, I think for a lot of people has been extremely rewarding. And a lot of people have, have their own ideas of what a bike should be and how it should look and how it should function. And those people are free to do anything they want. Um, because, uh, because this stuff is available and I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, I've had a little bit of a hand in that and making, making the yeah. stuff I have available, but, um, people couldn't, you know, even if I had all the stuff available, if people didn't have some instruction or, you know, or some, uh, some sort of way to get that information, it wouldn't do them much good. So again, you know, it kind of goes back to this, this uh, whole sort of computer revolution has, has made everything different. Um, You know, uh, I mean, you couldn't even go to the library and get a book on frame building because none (laughs) of them existed. You know, so um, this this stuff has really opened up and, and given a lot of people a lot of opportunity to have fun with bikes.
0: Yeah. I mean, even I took a frame building class in 2010 and in the coming years, I learned massively more. I mean, I learned quite a bit in two weeks, you know, for, for a two week stretch, I learned quite a bit, but you can't learn that much in the two weeks that you're there. And I learned almost everything else just through following other frame builders on Flick or reading the the email list serves and the the different forums like Velocipede Salon and, uh, and just all these, you know, and, and getting to know frame builders and emailing and calling them and, things that were made possible completely by the internet. And yeah, it's a totally different time now for sure.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a, and it's been a good thing overall. It's great.
0: You know, one of my questions, I don't see it here, but I I thought I was going to ask you about was, uh, didn't you make like a rail car bike at one point, (laughs) like a bike that you could ride down the railroad?
1: (laughs) Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. Um, there's there's a little bit of evolution on that. So, um, so uh, the old, there's an old black and white photograph that was circulating around and probably almost everyone has seen it of a row of guys on rail bikes, um, which are a bicycle that rides down one rail. And then there's an outrigger that stabilizes the bike. So you got your bicycle on the railroad tracks. So we were pretty intrigued by that. Um, and we, we, we found some guy in New Hampshire who was making the guide wheels, uh, that would go on the front of the bike and the outrigger wheels. So we bought some of those and we, Braised up some conduit and made these outrigger things and and rode our bicycles down the railroad tracks and it was a lot of fun um it's one of those things like someone got on the bike said oh this is so cool you're on rails you can't possibly fall off and of course he fell off his bike and crashed (laughs) on the railroad tracks um (laughs) you know they're 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 very unstable you you really have to be on top of it to ride one of those things Um, really you know, you, you know, yes, you are being guided down one rail, but it's, it's not something you can do. Um, you know, you can't do in the dark and it's really hard after a couple of beers. So, um, so one of the things is like, well, okay, if, if we want to continue riding our bikes on the railroad tracks, and fortunately around here, we had a, a railroad line that was, um, that was used by a train about once a week. So there are just enough trains to keep the line open, but you could go out on a you go out in, at nighttime and absolutely, be absolutely certain you would not run into a train. Um, so the thought was, okay, what what is it about uh, railroad cars that makes them stay on the track? Well, they've got four wheels, they're steel wheels, they've got a big flange on them. So they're like, okay, we've got to find some wheels. So we're on vacation in Oregon, uh, and we're we're going going down Highway Highway 101. And the railroad tracks were right next to it and were following along. And also there's this huge pile of scrap iron next to the railroad tracks. I'm like, oh, look at that. Let's go dig through there and see what we can find. And as we pulled around the pile of scrap iron, there are four little railroad wheels that go on a on a railroad, uh, like a little service car. Uh-huh. Um, and they're 16 inches in diameter and they weigh, I don't know, 40 pounds apiece. So they're pretty heavy for a bicycle. Yeah. But there are four of them sitting there. It's like, these are great. So we threw them in the trunk of the car and then went home. Um, so I had these four wheels and I had them probably for five years. They were just sitting around for a long, long time. Um, but the thought had never gone away. I was like, this would be really cool to to build something. So, so the wheels were the, you know, with, without the wheels, it wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, uh, let's see, what was it? One, one new year's we're uh, at a party and we're talking and someone says, yeah, you know, wouldn't it be fun to have something to ride down the railroad tracks? I was like, well, yeah, I've got these wheels. Um, So at the time, um, I had no employees, um, no employees, I wasn't married, um, no girlfriend at the time. So uh, on January 2nd, after New Year's, I went in my shop, uh, drew up all the plans um, on paper because I didn't have a computer at the time. ordered all the material. And before the end of January, I had a, a, a functioning rail bike and it was uh, two triples side by side with the four railroad wheels. And then it had a, um, we used derailleurs and stuff. So it was a. I uh, I think there's a three speed. So, so we just changed, changed speeds on a, on a triple crank set. So basically we had high, you know, low, medium and high, uh, which was fine for the railroad tracks. Um, so you had six people pedaling it, um, got a basket on the front. Um, and then we got a bench in the back, a couple of riders, you know, a couple freeloaders could, could hang out back there. Uh, and we just take it out on the railroad track and just have fun. We just go out and kind of have this little mobile party going up and down the railroad tracks. <laughs> um, and that
0: would, that would have been was, actually stable.
1: Oh, it, it was absolutely completely stable with uh, four wheels and railroad wheels. Um, yeah, it was completely stable. Um, you know and, and what what 's uh, been happening all over the country is is railroad lines are shrinking you know all these little branch lines that that used to go somewhere that used to go to a lumber mill or a dairy or something like that you know they are they 're just being abandoned i mean at, at this point they pretty much are all abandoned, um, but at that time, there were still a lot of uh, little lumber railroads all over northern California. So we put it in the back of my pickup truck and we went we went all over Northern California and rode all over the place. Um and really had a great time with it. Uh we took it out on uh took it back up into Oregon and went on a, a railroad camping trip. Um, wow! and it just it was it was fun. It was really a really a great thing. And finally, um finally came to an end when I was riding uh let's see, that was I'm trying to remember. Anyways, uh, I think it was father's day and three of us had our fathers on the rail bike. Um, and a cop stopped us, man. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You guys can't do this. You're trespassing. And it's like, come on, man, lighten up. says, so, I'm giving you a ticket for trespassing. So we all, we all got tickets for trespassing. So, um, because let's see, I think let me see. There might've been a misdemeanor. No, I don't think so. I think it was an infraction, but, um, uh, so, so we went, in front of the the district attorney. For some reason, we had to go to the district attorney. It wasn't this thing where we could just pay a fine and be done with it. Um, and the district attorney looked at it and said, now, wait a minute, you got a ticket for trespassing on railroad property? And said, yeah. Are you, are you serious? Said, yeah. So this is like rolling pumpkins down the driveway on Thanksgiving. Get out of here and don't ever get caught again. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll never get caught again. <laughs> um, So, you know, so the, uh, rail bike was hanging around for a long time and, you know, we were a little nervous about taking it out and getting caught again. I mean, we, we certainly took it out plenty of times and didn't get caught. Um, Mm -hmm. that was fine. Um, so finally I donated to a railroad museum, uh, up in uh, Portola, California, um, and then those guys felt that it didn't really represent the kind of museum stuff that they were trying to preserve, which was which was absolutely true. Um, <laughs> and 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 those guys gave it to a place uh, up in Weed, California, uh, called the Black Butte Center for Railroad Culture, and it's still up there. Those guys have a little bit of track, and they take it out once in a while. Oh, that's cool. No, so it's it's
0: still around. Yeah. Um, did you ever build any other bikes? I know you you know you had your hand on like thousands or hundreds of thousands of bikes with all these little parts but did did you ever build uh bikes other than than some of these oddities
1: um yeah so uh, there was an employee i had for a while a guy named mark hoffman who who wanted to become a frame builder um and his nickname was starving hoffman because like all frame builders he was starving all the time but um Anyway, uh, he, he decided he wanted to build bikes. Um, and he had built a handful of bikes, you know, five or six bikes. Uh, and he said, we're gonna do a production around bikes. And so he went around to all his friends and family and said, we're going to, you know, I'm going to make this bike. Um, and you want to subscribe. So he ended up with seven people. Um, and one of them was me. And the idea was he was going to cut and miter all the tubes. And then I would do the welding in trade for the frame. Um, so I, I, didn't actually design that bike, but I, I had a, a big hand in building it. Well, first of all, I welded them all, but also, um, you know, Mark needed a little bit of coaching along the way to just how to actually, actually do it. Yeah. Um, so, so we did that. Um, and then trying to think whatever, uh, I don't, I have never actually, you know, designed and built a bike from scratch myself. Um, but you know, I'm certainly certainly familiar with it. Um, that, uh well, actually, I should I should give a shout out to all the frame builders out there uh, because because I don't actually work with a frame jig and miter tubes all the time. Um, I get a lot of um, good ideas from other frame builders or from frame builders. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, some, some really good suggestions of, of what would make their life easier or a good product. Um, and it's over the years, it's been really helpful. Um, and I'm really appreciative of, of that kind of feedback. Um, a lot of times feedback is kind of this, um, you know, uh, no news is good news. As long as no one's complaining, everything's okay. Uh, Uh, you know, people. People don't let you know there's a problem until there is a problem. Um, otherwise, you just you just assume that it's it's smooth sailing. So um, yeah, the the framework is out there have have been a good positive influence um, with those suggestions.
0: Yeah, I always uh, really love seeing the ways that customers of mine use the tools that I make. Uh, I mean, it's cool to see it just actually getting used is kind of exciting. Like it gives it life you know, once you can make something right. and then you just make a bunch of it over and over again on the machine, it's like, well, you know, okay, cool. I made more of it, but then you see more people using it and that's kind of exciting. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, seeing the ways that people use my tools that I never even, you know, imagined or something like with my braze clamp, people get really creative with that. And then just seeing the stuff that people finish and, and it's exciting. And I, I love getting that feedback. You know, sometimes people do have an idea of how something could be better in a you know, there's been more than one occasion, quite a few occasions, where somebody suggests something and I say, well, That's actually a really good idea. I don't know why I didn't think of that, but like I'm definitely gonna include that on, you know, this revision or I'll make this next version of this or you know, whatever it is. Uh well right, right really exactly. Helpful. And
1: that, that that uh feedback is uh is contributes to the entire process of the thing. And also you're gonna comment on when you see something being used that's sort of another payoff there's there's the 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 monetary payoff that pays the rent but also just to see someone using your tools um or your products is really satisfying yeah uh you know it doesn't pay the rent but it is kind of nice to see that it gives you you know it's a it's a good validation of what you're doing is that what you're doing is moving in the right direction at the very least
0: yeah yeah no i love i love seeing that i always uh i'll I'll follow up with customers in my tube bender after a while uh, pretty commonly. And I'll say, you know, if you got any pictures of stuff you've been working on, I'd love to see it. And then when they send me stuff, I, I just get excited about it. I'd like, you know, just to see what people are up to um, and the things they make. And a lot of times it's really cool stuff. And I'm like, uh, you know, I, I'm happy with what I'm doing, but I get almost kind of jealous. I'm like, oh, man, that looks like a cool little shop they got going. And that's a cool project <laughs> that they're making. And
1: so it's yeah, exciting. what you know kind of shooting off on another tangent, um, would tell all of your, all of your listeners, if they get the chance, um, visit, visit their local frame builder, or if they go traveling, try and get a chance to visit. I know frame builders are going to hate this because they don't like people dropping in. But one of the things to see how other people set up their shops is really educational. Um, and it's it's really just a, a real great experience to see how other people accomplish their work. Um, and, and there's a lot of commonality in it, but there's a lot of really clever people out there that are solving problems in a lot of great ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, one of my uh, friends who's helped me learn, you know, CNC machining, who's been a CNC machinist programmer for like 20 years, and he's worked in all different shops all over the country. And so one of the things that comes with that experience of working a whole bunch of different places is like... If you had worked one place for 20 or 25 years, you'd be really good at stuff, but you maybe would have some bad habits or some things you were ignorant about that nobody had ever pointed out to you. But if you're hopping from shop to shop all the time and you're doing something in some ass-backward sort of way, somebody will tell you at some point. They'll say, why are you doing it like that? That's ridiculous. And so uh, – And same same thing, you know, like when you visit other people's shops, uh, somebody just had thought about it a little bit differently, and they maybe had a way better solution to the same problem. Uh, and if you just see that, you're not going to unsee it. You know, it's going to be stuck in your brain, and, right. and it'll help you sure, uh, do better yeah. work. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think no, that that's absolutely true. I think that exhausts the list of questions and uh, and the time that we had planned on talking. So I, uh, I'll wrap it up here. Thanks so much for being on the call, Mark. Uh, always appreciated. So many things you do. So uh, we'll see you at the next trade show
1: okay and joe thanks for having me on the show i really do appreciate it yep bye all right bye